Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone, and welcome back to None But the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcasts. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean and Flynn, We've got a big one tonight. It's 45 years since the legendary, and when I say legendary, I'm talking all caps, (laughs) legendary Winterland shows that took place in San Francisco, California in December 1978. A little later, we'll have our friend Priscilla Schroeder on to discuss. She was at the second night, which took place on December 16th. And before she joins us, we're going to spend some time talking about the night before, one of the most famous shows I think Bruce has ever played, and what that show means to us. Well, it means a lot. It was the first 78 bootleg that I got way back in the fall of 1988, and I wore it, uh, listened to it quite a bit, wore down the tape, and it was basically one of the five Bruce live Bruce albums before he released his own. Those the five seventy eight broadcast did as much to advance the legend of Bruce Springsteen than as anything else at the time. His those performances recorded by listeners on the radio circulated among friends and college dorms, and they helped. They did a lot to to convert the unconverted and. You know, two years later, he's out on the road playing basketball arenas every night. Well, why don't you tell people, since you're the expert on these matters, what were the five radio broadcasts before we get to Winterland <laughs> specifically? Well, I'm sure you know the five as well, but uh, I guess going in chronological order, you have the Roxy, July 7th, 78. You have August 9th, 78 at the Agora in Cleveland. Then you have September 19th in Passaic, New Jersey, the Capitol Theater. Uh, September 30th, the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And finally, December 15th in uh, San Francisco at the Winterland Ballroom. And I always, uh, I think the Passaic and Winterland shows are, are the most famous. Um, yes, for sure. I mean, if you're going to try to rank them, I th- it's hard to say which one is better or more significant. They're kind of like a 1A and 1B. And when I say significant, I mean they launched, each one launched a very famous bootleg. Um, Winterland produced Live in the Live in the Promised Land. And then the Passaic show was booted under the title Pisa de Resistance. I'm sure I'm, I'm not saying that anywhere near correctly. Uh, they were on vinyl at the time. And they those were, those were it. As I said, those were the unofficial Live Bruce albums uh, for... For years, they, those were the ones that people would say, "Hey, listen, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta hear this guy. You gotta hear, hear this recording, hear this performance, and because he is the real deal." I would say the the next one is the Agora, also pretty famously bootlegged under the "I Was a Teenage Werewolf" title. For some reason, that just goes a little bit behind the other two, and then then you have the Roxy, which. I guess it never really had a great recording coming off the air. And then you have some DJ chatter over the music at a couple of points that that always kind of uh, knocks it down a notch. 
And then, unfortunately, the Atlanta show, September 30th, uh, the legend is that there was a huge thunderstorm, uh, row of thunderstorms going through the southeast, and that messed up with the with the radio signal. And so we never really got a great recording of that one. Um, I think we got one in around 2010, 2015, somewhere in there, where uh, Jim's finally came up with a with a soundboard, uh, actually from the multi tracks, and that really launched it a long way. But of course, by then I think we had already had our emotional bonding time with with the previous previous shows pretty much cemented in our heads, and we knew every uh, every little stage chatter from uh, from the other from the other ones. Yeah, and that's a perfect lead into my Winterland story. But before I get to that, I just want to let people know we're going to be discussing the Agora bootleg because it was the second official archive release in the Springsteen series that they started in 2014. We're doing that as part of a series for our Patreon subscribers. You can go to patreon.com slash podcast. That will be out sometime probably around the second week of January, the Agora episode. But getting back to my Winterland story, I had seen Bruce in the summer of 84, as we've discussed. I had first become a fan when I, I must have been 11 or 12 in the uh, late 79 and then into 80 when the river came out. But I had never heard a bootleg. And uh, I saw Bruce at the Meadowlands in the summer of 84. And I was just so blown away, as so many of us were when we had that first experience. And I happened to be taking tennis lessons, and my instructor, I kept going on and on about how I saw Bruce, and he was a big fan. And he said to me, have you ever heard Winterland? And I said, what is that? And he came in the next week, and he handed me his Live in the Promised Land vinyl to borrow. And I took it home and I, I put that thing on. And it, you talk about emotional attachment. It, as important as Passaic is, and we've talked about this when the archive came out for these shows, there's nothing more important to me than the, the December 15th show. It made such an impact on me. And even though I was so blown away from the show that I had seen, the Darkness Tour was so totally different from the Born in the USA Tour. It, what I heard was just completely, I guess, unexpected and, and sort of mind-blowing. And it just left such an impact. And, and I played that thing. I made cassettes of it. I played that over and over and over again. And then finally, my buddy Roger and I, we'd go shopping and we started buying bootlegs. There was a store on Long Island called Mr. Cheapo's. Then we started going to Greenwich Village and I, I built up a little bootleg connection, but this was the first and by far the most important. Well, I'm willing to bet that if if your instructor had handed you Passaic, a piece of their resistance, that one would have been the most important one for you. I think that that first one, the first darkness broadcast you hear is is the one, it, it, and it's going to be either Passaic or Winterland for the, for the most part. And so they are, they do kind of run as one A and one B on, on the rankings. And as I said, they're, they're so important. They were so important to Bruce's live, live legacy and his reputation at the time and building his audience so much. And, uh, it's, then it's weird. Then after they did five broadcasts in 78, they didn't do another one until, until 88, I guess they, Felt like everybody was taping them and then bootlegging them. And well, so we didn't get anything for 10 years. 
Well, you're undoubtedly right that if I had heard Passaic first, that would have been my reaction as well. But there was something about the San Francisco set list, even that I find superior to Passaic. First of all, I think the version of the Fever, which was not played the night of, of September 19th, is just so unbelievable. And somewhere right around that time, I had gotten into Southside. I can't remember what year I first saw Southside at the Ritz. It may have been shortly thereafter. I think it may have been 85. But I was aware of Southside, and I didn't know that Bruce did the song. And I probably didn't even realize at that point that Bruce had written the song. And the fever in particular made a, a, a huge impact. And I, and I also really, really liked the version of the Ties That Bind, which is played here, obviously, before it's recorded for the river. Yeah, those two songs that were unreleased at the time were, were pretty damn cool to hear uh, here on Winterlane. I guess in, at the time you heard it in the mid 80s, uh, the fever wasn't released at all by, by Bruce anyway. And then you go back to Passaic and it does have meeting across the river into jungle land as well as uh, as Kitty's back. So each one has their own strength. And, you know, for me, I would probably say that I, I prefer Passaic more than Winterland. But, you know, you're really you're really talking you're splitting hairs there. I just, of course, I really prefer the version of She's the One from Passaic over, over Winterland. I definitely prefer Not Fade Away over Mona, even if uh, Winterland had Preacher's Daughter, which, again, unreleased until it's unreleased, period. <laughs> well, we're not saying much about the 16th, although we're going to get to that when Priscilla comes on. There were four songs different the second night. Now, uh, one of the interesting things about the second night that I didn't even realize, I don't think, until they released the archive, Backstreet's was missing the interlude. And of course, that was a very significant part of all these darkness shows. Now, the second night is clearly an amazing show. Also, it's coming in the final weeks of what is probably their best tour. But I do feel when I listen to that show that something is missing a little bit there. What What do you feel when you listen to that Backstreets? Yeah, that's a uh, it's that's a big big omission uh, for me that prevents it from being the the seventy eight Nugs archive release. It's such a great show otherwise, and I'm going to say something that's probably going to be controversial. But hey, you know what the hell? Except for backstreets and she's the one i definitely think the the performances of 12 16 were better than 12 15 uh, and that's only going from the recording that's not obviously i wasn't there i've never seen video but listening to the two shows back to back i i go with the second night on almost every song except for those two interesting it, it is true that i think the prove it all night solo in the intro in particular the second night really registers as being I, I think it's got a little extra oomph to it, even over the other nights from that tour. And the second night is a great show. Uh, you know, for me, it's a, again, it's an emotional thing. I'm always going to go back to the first show. It's a shame that they didn't have the multi-tracks for the first show, because I don't think there's any question if they had the multi-tracks and Al, Al Chiller had done a good job mixing it, which I think he would have, that would have been right up there as one of the definitive mm -hmm. releases. It, it, the sound quality, which is undeniably a step below the other 78 releases because of, because of that issue. But I, to me, I actually still listen to 1215 the most because it's just the one that, you know, it's like your first love in a way. And, <laughs> and that's oh, I get just, it. 
there's nothing else I can say about it. And Passaic is also very meaningful to me, but there's just something when I listen to Winterland, uh, which I've been doing in the last couple of days because we were going to do this. And it's like I close my eyes and I'm right back in the 1980s. I don't have the same placement of when I first heard Passaic for the first time. It's almost hard to quantify and put into words, but you you know what I'm saying? There's just something there like Winterland goes on and like suddenly uh, I'm 16 years old again. I get it. I get it. I'm, I have a very distinct memory of listening to the, to the Winterland broadcast, uh, listening to Backstreets, that amazing version of Backstreets. And I remember I was supposed to be reading some book. I think it was the Odyssey for my English class. And I just lost myself in the music, got totally lost in the book and from the book rather. And just, I just felt it, felt everything that he was, he was talking about. You lied and it was, yeah, I'll always remember that. And, and, and to me, I didn't have the same reaction to Passaic. I really didn't have that kind of listening experience with that one. And, and for me, if you want to go back to the biggest emotional attachment to a bootleg, it's going to be, uh, you can trust your, you can trust your car to the man who wears a star. And if they ever released the main point, uh, 75, well, Hey, I can, uh, we, I can discuss it that way. Oh, the back streets, just even thinking about it. And I, I heard it just a few hours ago. What an epic version. I had tweeted out from our account the other day, the version of back streets to mark the 45th anniversary from 1215. And someone wrote back uh, because I had said that it might be the single greatest version of any Springsteen song ever. And someone wrote back saying about Boston 77. And that, of course, <laughs> is also great. But in really thinking about it, when I read that response, 77, there's a rawness. I don't think as great as it is that it hit the same heights of 78 because the band was just so much better, I think, by 1978. They had been out on the road that entire year and they really had their sea legs under them. And I'm not saying that wasn't the case in 77, but as we know, in 1977, they were touring under different circumstances. That was still during the lawsuit period. They were really fighting for survival. And you, and you hear that in the performance and in his voice. But here there's something, it's almost like he has hit a higher level, like he knows he's hitting a pinnacle of rock and roll with this darkness tour. And of course, as we know, that continued for the next really seven years from here, where they just kept getting bigger and bigger in terms of the audience. And uh, I don't think the performance necessarily ever hit these heights again. But certainly some of the nights on the River Tour, we can debate what is the best show of all time. It's probably one of the shows we're talking about, or maybe New Year's Eve or the Vietnam Vet show. I, I would say it's from that handful of shows, but just what they were doing here was so magical. When you say New Year's Eve, you obviously mean 1980 at Nassau Coliseum. Yes. Nassau, okay. yes. Yeah, not uh, the Tower Theater or, or Cleveland in, in, 70, in 78. But. Correct. But yeah, the, to me, this to me, the thing about the the Boston seventy seven shows is that you can really hear the weight of the lawsuit on him. Yes, um, and it's you feel it, you feel it, you feel it listening. And the thing about also that Backstreet's from Boston is that there was kind of like a long, long intro, kind of drawn out, moaning, and I mean it's it's great and it's raw, but 
this one to go straight into the song like he did in 78, I think makes it a little bit better. Gives it a more of a direct and succinct uh, start to the song. And at this point, there's there's almost nothing better than hearing the first few notes of, of Roy's piano to start Backstreet's at, at any Springsteen song, except maybe the first few notes of Incident. No, when he was yelling, stop, you've got to stop. And the first time I ever heard that, I, I was just so stunned. And it's almost the performance. Well, he is acting, of course, and it is a performance, but it seems so real, like he's so wounded, like that this girl has just reached down into his soul. <laughs> is it, Do you feel the same thing? Yeah, and I'm just kind of... I'm impressed that he was able to do that, to kind of pull that emotion that sounds so raw night after night. Obviously, at the second night at Winterland, it, he didn't do it. So I, I always wondered if it was too much that first night. But then he returned to doing it a few nights later. I guess it was in Portland and Seattle. And you know, so he was able to – so it wasn't just that he was drained from, from the 15th, that he couldn't do it on the 16th. Is just that – for whatever reason, he, he chose not to. Now, the other thing that always struck me listening to these shows, because I had seen a show, as as we were saying, uh, just a couple of months before I heard this, and he had done Grown Up the first time I saw him, which had the long bear story. But the storytelling here really has a, a bit of a different feel. Uh, even the story he tells before Santa Claus, it's... I. Is there a, a sense of maybe, uh, which is probably coming out of the lawsuit, that you still he still has a, a, a bit of the desperation and the hunger? Now, by the Born in the USA tour, I think his perspective had changed. And even by the time we got to August, of course, he was on his way to being the biggest rock star on the planet. But what do you feel like the, the Santa Claus story and, and the being outside <laughs> at three o'clock in the morning and I ain't got no money and I can't buy any presents. Yeah. He's still feeling that uh, he's poor and doesn't have any money. And it's just him and, and Steve against the world or against those two guys as it is on the second night. So it's, it has a definite different feel than growing up with the bear in 1984. And I think the, those are the only two stories he told here, right? Were uh, before Santa. There weren't any others at Winterland, right? I don't think so. He Well, do you want to call what happens before Rosalita story? Oh, yes. That first night about the, he's on a, he's a private detective. That was detective. also quite unusual. <laughs> Yeah, it was. Usually it was just, uh, it's, it's, here's a saddest song we, we're going to play tonight. And then, then he does Rosie, which obviously everybody goes nuts for. But yeah, that, that was pretty funny. And there was a bootleg release, a uh, fan, fan-made bootleg release of it uh, around 2004, The Prodigal Son. And for whatever reason, his release did not include that intro. And that was one of the more uh, mystifying things about it. It was an upgrade in sound quality in every way, but it was missing the intro to Rosie. <laughs> Well, that would be a flaw to that release. But fortunately, we have the official release. Yes, yes, we do. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> and it does sound pretty damn good. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. The, I mean, I obviously would have preferred if they had the multi-tracks. But once I get into it and I start listening to it, I totally forget about that. Um, I do, too. But there were a few times, and I think it's during Thunder Road, where all of a sudden the 
just for let's just for a few seconds or even one second, the stereo the stereo field just goes really extra wide, and it's a little distracting. But at the same time, I'd rather have that flaw on a on a soundboard than not have it at all for, from them. The other thing I love about this show is Bill Graham, again, legendary with all caps. They don't get any bigger than Bill Graham in the music industry. His intro of Bruce calling him the chairman of the board, which, of course, is a riff off Sinatra. And then Bruce bursts out with Badlands. Uh, There's just everything about this show. Uh, They were coming to the end of the tour He had a couple of weeks to go. They had really accomplished, I think, with this tour, what they had set out to accomplish. And in a way, I think Graham is acknowledging that when he called them the chairman of the board. Yeah. And then on on the second night, he he introduces uh, the show and Bruce by saying, rather than tell you about last night, which was magic, let's talk about tonight. And uh, so that that was pretty funny, too, because he was acknowledging how great it was. Uh, My so my favorite intro to to a 78 broadcast is uh, Kid Leo's in Cleveland, pound for pound, round for round. There ain't no finer band around. I, that, that's always uh, that's always my favorite. Yeah, that's a, a good one too. And I think we've talked enough about December 15th. And fortunately, we're going to have someone to discuss in detail the December 16th show who actually was there, which is pretty <laughs> mind-blowing. So we're going to bring in our friend Priscilla Schroeder, who not only was at Winterland December 16th, 1978, also saw the Roxy 1975 here in L.A. So obviously she's on to talk about Winterland, but we will try and get in a question or two about the Roxy because I don't know how many people we're going to have on the show who have actually seen Bruce in 75, much less at the Roxy. So with that, we're going to bring Priscilla in. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotas, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Chipotas. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So we're here to talk about the Winterland show. Um, did you? Which one of those two did you attend, if or both? Well, I attended the second one. 
but I listened to the first one on the radio. We were living in Sacramento, and they broadcasted on KZAP, KZAP. And I actually recorded the show on my dad's old Sony reel-to-reel record, tape recorder, and I still have the big tapes from the show. And so hearing the show and knowing we were going the next night, it was pretty exciting. What was it like to be there? Because, of course, most of our listeners haven't seen Bruce dating back to 1978. And these are such famous shows. Tell us, what was the buzz in the room like when you entered that night on December 16th, 1978? Well, it was pretty electric. I mean, we... It was the first time I had been to Winterland, which in itself, you know, was pretty iconic. And uh, we went in. We did not have a, you know, we were not on the floor. We had seats. But it's not a very big place. But you could just feel all the energy in the room. And because this was my sixth Bruce show, I knew kind of what to expect. I mean, I knew it was going to blow the lid off the place. And... Uh, so you could you could feel that excitement, and sure enough, you know he came out and he got it off to a great start, and it just kept going from there. And then uh, when he played Rendezvous, we had heard that before in '76 in Oakland. I only know because I looked at the set list. We went to a show at the Paramount Theater in Oakland. And that was cool. And he dedicated it to Greg Ginn, who is a Bay Area musician. And we were familiar with him from the uh, Chartbusters album on Berserkly Records, where he had a lot of songs. And he actually put out, you know, Rendezvous as a single. And because my husband was in radio, we have a life-size cutout of Greg Ginn that we still have. I think it's under our bed. (laughs) And... um, so, you know, that was kind of a special thing to have Greg Kin have it be dedicated to him. Now, I think it was before he actually recorded Rendezvous. It was. Yeah. But it, it was, you know, well known in the Bay Area. Because he also did For You. I mean, he did a lot of Bruce covers. As we were talking about before you came on the air, the twelve fifteen show, because that was the first bootleg I ever got, is such right. an important show for me. And I can't even imagine, just as I was listening to the show you saw today, December 16th, just thinking about some of the moments, Prove It All Night was the one that jumped out to me. The intro is almost six minutes long before they actually go into the opening chords of the song. What do you remember about that? And it's one of the more insane solos I think he has ever done that night. What was the crowd reaction? People had really never seen anything like that before, unless they had seen him earlier on the tour. Right. And, um, well, we did see him in Berkeley in uh, July 1st. So I I imagine some of the same people were there. I mean, there was quite a buzz in the Bay Area. It's not like, you know, he was not known. So, um, yeah, but that intro, I mean, the piano just went on and on and on. When I was listening to it this morning, I kept waiting for the guitar to come in, and it took forever. But when it did, boy, the hair on my arms stood up because it was just so incredible. And I believe that's how it was in the uh, in the venue. You know, I think people were pretty quiet during the piano, but then when it started, I'm sure there was a big reaction. I just remember the atmosphere being very charged throughout the night. I can imagine. Well, what moments overall 
really stand out for you? What what when you remember when you think back to that night, what what's like the first few images or memories come back to you qu- immediately? Well, you know, Bruce was always known for his stories. I mean, I always loved all the stories he would tell. So when he started Santa and doing the long story with that, um, that was special. And I, I love the part when he talks about, you know, you go go home and you put the little pop tarts in the toaster and you turn on Johnny Carson and you hope that he's there. And that was so uh relevant because he wasn't always there you know you turn him on oh it's a guest host tonight you know we wish johnny was here so the stories he would tell were so relatable everybody could you know understand what he was talking about then just building it all up and you know his staging was always pretty sparse but they had the big amps over on clarence's side and there was this little string of colored christmas lights you know like the kind the with the bigger bulbs like you'd put on a tree or outside. But it was very simple, just one little string. And then they came on when they were singing. And then to hear Clarence do the ho-ho-ho's, I mean, that really got the whole place really going to hear that. And then for me, when he went into Fever, because Fever has always been one of my favorite songs ever since you know, Southside in 76, I played it over and over and over again. So then to hear Bruce do it, that was just amazing. And how he went on and on. And I, you know, I've listened to the 15th so many times. I got to say, I kind of like that version better. The, you know, gonna be, it's going to be all right now was, I think, better on the 15th. But it was pretty electric to hear it on the 16th. The other couple of things that really stood out for me were Because the Night. I mean, the guitar on that was pretty incredible. And I've always loved that song, too. And then uh, hearing Point Blank for the very first time. Because I don't think, well, I looked at the set list of shows that I had seen, but he really hadn't been playing Point Blank because, you know, it it really hadn't even been released yet. And that song just really grabbed me. Right. By that portion of the tour, he was doing a number of songs, of course, the night before he had done the ties that bind that would mm-hmm. wind up on the river. And then Spirit of the Night, I remember when he was doing that, you know, he he dove down into the audience and I thought, oh, I wish we were closer. We were f- too far back. One of my favorite things from this from this tour, and he does it at this show, is the intro is the is the segue between Racing in the Street and Thunder Road, where he talks about seeing an Indian in the desert with everything that mm-hmm. he scrapped together. And it just had a little sign down this, this road that said, this is a land of peace, love, justice, and no mercy, Thunder Road. Right. Did that stand out for you at all at the time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and always Thunder Road. Um, but just how he – it was just – a good segue and it made you think you know he talked about you know the movie poster or the robert mitchell movie and how he wrote the song you know using the title but then to see that sign and and you could just picture he and steve you know riding motorcycles or something in the utah desert or um and you know that's what i mean all his stories they were always so real and relatable and you felt like he was talking just to you he always had you know, it was a very intimate feel, even though, you know, you weren't the only one there. This uh, was such a special time in his career, and you were so lucky to have seen multiple shows in 1978 
How did Winterland rank, would you say? Was it near the top, at the top? Gosh. Well, you know, they're all good for different reasons. I mean, this one, I, yeah, I suppose was at the top. The Berkeley one was great because we got to go backstage and meet him after the show. So, I mean, that would probably be my all-time great. But, and then the one I saw, I saw one in Hampton, Virginia. I went home to, my mother was living there, and my sister, who's 11 years younger than I am, so they knew I love Bruce, and they were walking at a Coliseum Mall and by Sam Goody's record store, and my sister said to my mom, oh, you know, Bruce is coming, and Priscilla really likes him. Let's, you know, see if we can buy tickets. And my mom went in and got us, uh, we were in the six-row center, and I think the tickets were like six bucks, and she just walked in and got them. And so it's become a joke between uh, Jay and I because he was at that show too, and he was in the third row. I always say he was blocking our view. But um, my sister, who was 14 at the time, that was her first show, and she's gone to many, many shows since then with me. So wow. each show was very special. Well, I'm curious about this back backstage meeting now. Oh. Uh, how are you? How are you able to to do that? And if you, can you share any uh, details of the conversation? You don't have to. If, no, if no, no, no. Um, once again, my husband was on radio. He was the program director of a station in in Sacramento, and so we're at the show. And the record company had given him tickets, and there was an intermission at the show. And the record company guy comes over. You know, we had just been married for a year. We had just had our first anniversary. And the uh, record company guy comes up to Art and says, oh, would you, you know, there's going to be a gathering backstage after the show. Would you like to go? And Art's being too cool. He's, and he's like, I mean, and hi. And I'm taking him under the seat. <laughs> and I'm thinking, if you say no, that's it. We're going to be divorced right now. <laughs> but he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'd like to go. So we did. And... Um, you know, back then, radio was super competitive, and there were ra other radio stations, including the people from KZAP, you know, in Sacramento, and other stations in the Bay Area, and everybody stood in their own little group. You know, they didn't mingle. There was a little group for each station, and we had to wait quite a while, you know, I guess while Bruce was showering or something, and, and everybody's talking in their own little group, and then Bruce came in. And he was amazing. He made a point of going to each individual little group and talking to people. And he was asking questions of the people he was talking to. So he came to us, you know, and he was asking us, you know, what we'd done that day or this or that. And we were with some friends of ours, and we were all from San Diego. So um, we asked him, well, you know, we love Rosalita, and where is that little cafe down San Diego way? And he just laughed, and he said, oh, there was no such place. I just always liked San Diego, and it sounded good in the song, so I put it in there. But it's not a real place. That's so that was our, our big moment. You know, and he shook my hands. I had my camera in the bottom of my purse, but I was too cool to take it out because nobody was doing that, and I, I didn't want to be a fool. Now I'm really sad I didn't, but but he was he was just so nice, you know, and he just made a point of going around and talking to everybody. So speaking of Rosalita, what do you remember? That of course closed the main set, and then there was this electric set of encores that night in San right. Francisco. 
does anything stand out from the encores? You got uh, a version of quarter to three to end the night, which I'm sure was just frenetic. Yes, yes. You know, you just, you know, it's all like, you know, I can't take it anymore. And, you know, and then it just keeps coming back. Now, Rosalita was always one of my very favorites. And so you knew when you heard Rosalita, because he'd always introduce the band, and you'd know, oh, it's getting close to the end now. But really, at this show, Rosalita, yeah, you thought it was close to the end, but then it just kept going on and on and on. And I think we were all more exhausted than he was. I mean, I know we were just totally spent after the show. Because, you know, who can sit still? Or who can sit? We were all up and dancing around, even though we weren't in GA. But... Yeah, it's always surprising about the how much frenetic energy that he had, especially for those of us who didn't see him until the '80s, the, to realize just how much electricity he had going with within him within himself. Right. And I remember, you know, I saw a video of uh, you know one of the, I think one of Zindi's videos at uh, one of the, at the Monmouth event, like almost ten years ago, and it was like he was shaking. Just like you could see the electricity just going through him, and it was just I couldn't. That was just mind blowing because I, as I said, I've only seen him in the since the eighties, and he wasn't quite like that even in uh, even even in the on the Tunnel of Love tour. Right. Well, and he would just um, he would just be running all over the place, and just the interplay between he and Clarence, you know the. You know, Bruce would be jumping up and he'd run over and jump on the piano and then he'd run back to the other end of the stage and then Clarence would have the sax and, you know, they'd get together. I mean, that that I loved. You just, you never saw that with any other performer. And that's what made it so electric. I'm sure you've seen the, you know, the, the clip from Phoenix when he's doing uh, Rosalita. And, you know, that's what it was like. And I remember trying to tell people... You know, you couldn't explain what he was like if they hadn't seen him because he was so unlike anybody else. And when that clip kind of surfaced, there was a show they did, I think it was on ABC, something about the the history of rock and roll. Or anyway, yeah. um, we bought a VCR because I said, I have to have that clip. And that was our first VCR. And then... Um, they had that clip on there. And there's also a great piece where uh, they show Gerald Ford saying, you know, at long last, our national nightmare is over. Because the disco, you know, he broke through all the disco stuff. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a nice juxtaposition there. Of uh, He wasn't talking about uh, the, the disco scourge on, on the United States. He was not. One of the interesting things is you don't even need video. If you listen to the tape, which I, when I was this morning, I was like, good rocking tonight and Badlands, just those 10 minutes alone. You're like, how could someone keep up and do this for two and a half for three hours? I don't know. The power is that he's singing with is so apparent on the recording that it's just remarkable. And you're right. Even the greatest acts, people did not, come with the force that he brought to these performances never mind the length i mean he just kept going and going and going and you know it's almost as an audience you're thinking oh my god please stop we can't take any more but then he'd keep going and of course you'd find the energy to keep going too well this has been fantastic you provided us amazing color of this legendary stand 
at Winterland. Before we let you go, and perhaps we should bring you back to discuss the Roxy 75, but <laughs> just quickly, what was that like to see Bruce in 1975 in this unbelievable venue, not far from where I'm sitting, right. that holds 500 people? It was probably the most incredible night I've ever had because we were sitting at tables and I swear he was standing on the table just a couple of tables away from me and when he did Thunder Road and said you know I got this guitar and learned how to make it talk he was looking right at me and I thought oh that's it I never need to see anything else after this and like I said that show was so powerful that we ran down to the Sears store on peak Pico Boulevard the next day to buy tickets to the next show, which was going to be at uh, UC Santa Barbara in the gym. So remarkable. So one show when you were hooked. Oh yes, no <laughs> doubt about it. No doubt about it. And I had not really heard of him. I mean, I knew of him, and it was funny because you know we worked at the radio station, and like I said, Art got the tickets because he was the music director. And other people at the station really wanted to go because they had been listening to Bruce. I had not really listened, but I happened to be going out with Art, so I got to go. Well, after that show, you know, I made sure I listened to everything I could get my hands on. And bought we bought bootlegs. I think I have the, uh, you can trust your car to the man who wears the star. Yeah, yeah. That's and, my, that was my first bootleg. <laughs> yeah. So we wow. had really good friends who lived in Hollywood. So even though we lived in San Diego, we spent a lot of time up in Hollywood and a lot of time at record stores. Well, so thank fun. you so much for joining us. This was <laughs> tremendous. We really appreciate it. Well, I'm, glad, so I'm glad I could be a part of it. It was fun to relive 45 years ago, but... You know, as the T-shirt says, something like, you know, I, I may be old, but I saw the best concerts. <laughs> that is definitely and you true. Did. Not the old part, but the best <laughs> concert part. You know, I, I feel very fortunate. I started going to concerts at a very young age, and I went to high school in San Diego and went to lots of shows there. But nothing compared. I mean, I saw Hendrix. He was pretty amazing. But. Nothing compares to the Springsteen shows I've been fortunate enough to see. Once again, that was Priscilla Schroeder sharing with us her memories and experiences of, of seeing Bruce at Winterland, uh, December 16th, 1978, as well as uh, a couple of drops of uh, Roxy 75 and Berkeley 78. It's just crazy what Priscilla has been lucky enough to see. Uh, you can't help but envy her. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking uh, jealous, jealousy-inducing uh, conversation, but uh, but yeah, she saw some great shows, and it's funny because she she we always hear the legend of Bruce Springsteen in the seventies, like people saying, "Oh, you got to see this guy, you got to see him," or people who see a show and then the next day they they go buy tickets, and I mean, and that's the legend, and then and then she did it back in seventy five, so you know it wasn't quite the legend; it was it was fact. Yeah, and to think that she went backstage, it's just, it's like living the dream. I mean, it's, it, you can't get any bigger than that. So I, I appreciate that she came on and told us those stories. Oh, of course, of course. Now, I guess she didn't see any other shows for a while, but uh, I think that uh, 
the Winterland 78 would, uh, would keep me going for a long time. Every time I'm in the Roxy, uh, I just think to myself, how is it possible that Bruce played there in both 1975 and 1978? Yeah, you know, probably most of our listeners haven't ever been there. It's this tiny room like she was talking about. It's just, it's mind boggling to think the E Street Band playing in that room, especially the force that they were playing with in 1978. You're think the building wouldn't have survived. <laughs> well, also keep in mind that, that they didn't have 18 people on stage like they do, like they've done in 23 and, uh, and 12, 13, 14. So no, but they, were, they didn't need 18 people on stage either. To- <laughs> no, they were a streamlined force of nature. That That is for sure. And I had a similar experience that one time I went to the bottom line. I'm like looking around going, Bruce played here and it's like, holy crap. I was just trying to envision it. And yeah. I'm not sure that I really could, but so well, your wife I and totally I get that. came so close to seeing Bruce in the bottom line in uh, 1992, which if we had handled it differently, we probably would have, but unfortunately we were left outside. So, uh, say la vie. That you was... saw a lot of other, you saw a lot of other shows on that tour. So yes, <laughs> to say the anyway. least. Just uh, this is a trip down memory lane here with the uh, with the emotional ties to Winterland for me and everything that came after. Totally get it. Totally understand. It was, uh, as I said, those bootlegs, I think, go a long way in, in a lot of fans uh, history or the experiences they had when they first got into Bruce and first started listening to, to bootlegs. These are the ones that they should seek out first when they're going down that path and and just like you, they really do bond with with these recordings. They play it over and over and over again. And I mean, I still do it. It really does become such a huge part of our DNA. In a way, I almost wonder, with all the discussion over the years, oh, there was never a live album until 1986. I wonder if they had released a live album instead of doing the radio broadcasts, if it would have been as an effective maneuver as having these radio broadcasts, because really it made it sort of a grassroots thing, like you were saying, the people recording and trading the tapes. It made it personal in a way that going into a record store and just buying a live album, which also would have been overdubbed and all kinds of trickery, because that's what they did with live albums back then. I don't know if it would have been the same. It's it's, it's an interesting question. I don't think it would have been. I think the clear example is that is the Backstreet's that was recorded at the Roxy in 78, released on Live 7585, where they took out the, the Sad Eyes interlude. And I think a major part of people getting into these recordings, getting into these shows, these broadcasts, was the raw emotion in, in that song, in that interlude. And without it, which they did in, in, in 86, as I said, it, it lost a lot. It wasn't for sure. I remember listening to it and being like, this isn't that special. It's backstreets, but it's, it's just like it is on the album. And so it, it really, it really missed a lot. Yeah. They neutered it. And if they had done that in 1978, you're 100% correct. It would not have had anywhere near the power that these tapes had. So is there anything else that we want to say about Winterland or 1978 in general? Well, just going back to the live album uh, discussion that we were just having a minute ago, I 
they would not have included a full show. And I think part of another part of the attraction of those great shows, great broadcast, the fact that it was a whole show and you got all the encores. And I just feel that a, a live album would have omitted several key songs, Detroit Medley, Quarter the Three, Twist and Shout. So it just wouldn't have had the, again, would not have had the same effect. Completely agree. And with that, let's wrap things up. And when, as we do that, this week, we certainly want to take a moment and wish everyone a very happy holiday season and a happy new year. We're looking forward to a big 2024. Of course, Bruce is going to be out on the road and we're going to be covering it. Yes, back on tour and uh, looking forward to seeing how the show mo- is modified from last year, even though I'm not expecting too many changes, but it's going to be good. It's Life is always better when Bruce is on tour. That is true. So with that... None But the Brave is a presentation of Evergreen Podcast produced by Bull Market Entertainment. On Twitter, you can find us at MBTB Podcast. Again, our Patreon is patreon.com slash MBTB Podcast. So thanks again to Priscilla Schroeder for joining us and for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean, saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road in the new year. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.